We're looking at the atonement. And I need to preface this whole message. You're going to hear a fair amount of biblical text. It's important to me. One of the reasons I underline, and we had some technical glitches today, but one of the reasons I underline is I remember reading an article where the pastor said, don't just tell people the idea is in the text. Show them the words. Make them see the words you're talking about in the text so they can't possibly leave thinking you're just sharing your ideas. So I'm going to go through quite a few Old Testament texts at length. And I just want you to understand where I'm coming from. In my view and in the view of this church, everything we read from the book of Exodus and Leviticus is just as much God's infallible word as what we read in the Sermon on the Mount. I part company radically with a lot of progressives who see a lot of mistakes and just misunderstandings in the Old Testament, and they finally get straightened out when Jesus comes in the new. It's a very common view And it is not my view for 40 years in this church. Everything is God's word 100% and needs to be understood in the context in which it is given. But it's not less God's word in Exodus than it is in Matthew. Jesus' words aren't more true than the words we have recorded in the Old Testament. I just wanted that to be clear in everyone's mind when I read these texts. Here's the question I want to look at this morning. Why can't a loving God just overlook my sin and forgive me if I'm truly sorry for committing it? You wrong me. I forgive you. I don't require you to go out and butcher a lamb. I just forgive you. How come God can't do that? Seems more loving. Why can't a loving God just forgive and overlook my sin if I'm sorry for committing it? I want to have a careful look at the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 1 to 10, then verse 15 and 16, and then 20 and 22. Stay with this, okay? If you have a Bible, look it up. I think the whole thing will be on the screens. Leviticus 16, 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. I'm going to talk about that. When they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel, two male goats for a sin offering. Look at all the, the, the rigmarole and the process. And one ram for a burnt offering, six. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself. Before he does anything for anybody, Aaron's a sinner. He has to have an offering for himself as well. And shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Atonement, there's the word. Seven. 
Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. Goat will be killed. Ten. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement. There's the second use of that word. To make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. That means departed, outcast. 16, verse 15. He's got these two goats. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is, for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil to do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat, the front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement, third time, for the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting. So it's not just the people, the place. Everything has to be cleansed. God is of such a holy character. And of course, blood didn't cleanse anything. Hebrews tells us that. It's a picture. It's, it's a, an object lesson that they're to learn. 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Now, this is interesting. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their sins. Now, how long did that take? Have you ever tried to hold on to a goat? I'm serious. Have you ever tried to hold on to a goat? No wonder he says two hands. Get that goat by the head. Hold on for dear life. And then you're going to confess all the sins of all the people, and he shall put them on the head of the goat. Of course, it it didn't, sin doesn't get transferred to a goat, but there's an object lesson. We're talking about Jesus one day. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Wow. To this day, this is by far the hub of all Israel's religious observances. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. It's observed for the very first time in our text today. Passover, we studied that for three days, was celebrated at the beginning of each year. The Day of Atonement was celebrated in the fall of each year, and at God's instructions, both were to be repeated annually so the people would never forget their lessons. The Hebrew verb kippur, most commonly translated into English as to make atonement. That's what it means. And I hope you'll notice that it occurred four times in the verses that we read. And I'm arguing that it carries a meaning that includes but goes beyond forgiveness. True, it results in forgiveness, but it reaches forgiveness in a very 
careful, prescribed way. I, I like the idea that the idea of atonement has at its core the expressing yet diverting of God's just wrath against sin. So in other words, while atonement that we read about is aimed at accomplishing forgiveness, it doesn't just begin with forgiveness. It begins in love, but it doesn't begin in forgiveness. By that I mean atonement is never just blind forgiveness. It is forgiveness at great cost. It is forgiveness that reaches our hearts via the fulfilling of divine justice against sin. So a price is paid, forgiveness is won. I have four or five thoughts I want to leave with you. Point number one. The meaning of biblical terms must be determined by their textual use and not just by our culture's preference. I'm thinking specifically about the two terms we've been studying in this series right now. Passover, which we took three Sundays looking at, and now atonement. Both terms face squarely, not just the love of God, he initiates, it is his love, but the justice of God. They both carry the idea of forgiveness, but neither one deals with forgiveness merely as forgetting, overlooking, letting off the hook. There's no forgiveness from God that way. Why not? Well, we overlook sin because we have to, because we're sinners. I forgive you when you wrong me because, well, I know that I've done the same thing to other people. We overlook sin, we put up with sin, we forget about sin because we can't help but get used to sin. We forgive and forget because we know we've done the same thing to someone else or something similar. We've upset friends by our thoughtlessness. We've made promises we didn't keep. We've lost our tempers as others have lost their tempers with us. So unless we're just incredibly short-sighted, and sometimes we are, we just forgive those same faults in others because we know we're going to need to be forgiven by those other people sooner or later. None of that applies to God. It's all different when we deal with God. God is a being who does not know what it's like to be less than absolutely perfect, ever. He has no failures, no weaknesses, no shortcomings, no faults, no flaws, no deficiencies. That means, unlike this crowd right here, unlike we, there is no way for him to relate to sin. He can't, he can't understand it experientially the way we do. So, so how does God come to forgive sinners? I mean, his being, his being won't let him tolerate sin any more than your being will allow you to breathe underwater. It just doesn't work. 
So there's a sense in which, even though God is infinitely loving, it's much harder for God to deal with sin than it is for you and for me, in a certain sense. And that's where these biblical terms come into the picture. I'm going to look at two biblical stories. I won't read all the text. That reveal the meaning of atonement. We aren't going to study the whole teaching of these passages. I'm only interested in them this morning as they refer to the meaning of atonement. What is atonement all about? So A, I'm going to talk to you a bit about Numbers chapter 25. You don't have to look it up. It describes the occasion when the Israelites committed sexual immorality with Moabite women and began worshiping their gods. The text says in verse 3 that the Lord's anger burned. Interesting. The Lord's anger burned against them and... He caused, God caused a plague to break out against them. Moses tries to deal with the situation, God bless him, by putting the ringleaders to death as per the Lord's instructions. That's in verses 4 and 5. Now, the story gets even juicier. While all this is going on, an Israelite man brings one of these women right by the tent of meeting to be with her sexually. And this so enrages Phineas, the priest, that he leaves the tent of meeting with a spear, follows the couple into the tent, drives the spear right through the man and the woman's body, pinning them both to the ground. Immediately, When this happens, the text says, verse 8, the plague of the Lord is stopped. Now for the really strange part. You thought you heard it already. The strange part of the story. While I would have thought that the actions of Phineas were maybe a tiny bit extreme, the Lord, the Lord, God, has nothing but praise and reward for what Phineas did. And and here's where the idea and explanation of a key term comes into the story. Let me get this for you now. Let me try and get this for you. Oh, I might not have it. Sorry. Here. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has, look at, has turned back my wrath. We're talking about the meaning of atonement. Has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel so that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. So that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say, behold, I give to him, Phineas, my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after them, the covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made, say it with me, there it is, made atonement for the people of Israel. Notice carefully, he 
Phineas, verse 11, was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. So, apparently, what Phineas was manifesting was God's anger. He was concerned for God's glory. I mean, these people did nothing to Phineas. What did he care if they were messing about in a tent somewhere? Why couldn't he just forget it? He's thinking about the commandment of God. He's thinking about what God had instructed. He's thinking these people are disobeying God, and Phineas can't stand it. There's more. The text is really clear. In carrying out God's wrath against this couple, Phineas actually, listen, he actually protected the rest of Israel from the plague of judgment that God had sent. That's in 25.8. Phineas went after the man of Israel into the chamber, pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly, and thus he saved the rest of the people of Israel. The plague was stopped. Verse 13 makes this point even more strikingly. Why? Why did the plague of God's judgment stop right at that point? So, so how could the death of this one wicked couple stop God's wrath from coming on the whole nation? And it shall be to him and to his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. All of them. He, he saved all of them from God's wrath by what he did. Here's my point. Make the connection. You're going to see it repeatedly this morning. Make the connection between wrath and atonement. It's inescapable. God's wrath was expressed. There was a plague. Then the people were spared. And you'll see this pattern again and again. Numbers chapter 16 makes a similar point. The people have been grumbling ever since they left Egypt. Why did you bring us out here in the wilderness? Why didn't you leave us in Egypt? We were better off in Egypt. Never mind it was idolatry and they were worshiping other gods. So because of their persistent grumbling... In the face of all God's care and provision, verse 41, the Lord sends a plague. Number 16, 41. And again, Moses and Aaron have got to figure out what to do. Moses tells Aaron to offer up incense to the Lord to stop this outbreak of God's wrath. It's in Numbers chapter 16, 46 40 to 47. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and hurry. Hurry, there's a plague. Take your censer, put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and look at, make, say it, atonement for them. And the connection between atonement and wrath. Make atonement for them because wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun And so Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on incense, and here it is again, made atonement 
for the people. Again, the only point I'm making right here is this consistent link between atonement. Jesus died on the cross for our atonement, right? Whenever you see atonement all throughout the Bible, you're going to see it linked to God's wrath. Atonement deals with God's wrath. There's a distance. God's wrath against my sin creates this enormous distance that I can do nothing about. There needs to be atonement. Yes, the people were spared. Yes, love and mercy triumph, but not automatically. Atonement must be made for the people's sin. So, remember, atonement is the provision made for the removal of God's just, righteous wrath. It results in forgiveness, but it's more than forgiveness. It deals with the issue of how sinful, fallen people can exist in the presence of an absolutely holy God. I mean, it was easier, in a sense, it was easier for these people to be delivered from Egypt than it is for sinful people to live near a holy God. There's a problem there. It's constantly a problem. In fact, this issue is the one that brings about the specific instructions in our opening text that I read about the Day of Atonement. So point number two. It is not easy for sinful people and a holy God to live in the same camp. That's the painful discovery that the Israelites made after they had their exodus from Egypt. God would go with him, and that caused all sorts of problems. In fact, the whole ceremony of the Day of Atonement, remember it was to be repeated every year, it has its roots in a rather disastrous encounter. It's in Leviticus 16.1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. I told you I'd come back to that. When they drew near before the Lord and died. There's no mistaking the purpose behind this opening reminder. As all these instructions of the Day of Atonement are given, Moses reminds them of something that happened before. Here's this reminder. The death of the two sons of Aaron. They drew near to the Lord and they died. And so, and so everyone is made to feel the urgency of listening when God tells people how they should deal with their sinful hearts before trying to get close to him. We just got done singing. Draw me nearer, nearer. Really? it seems like it's a risky business for sinful people to draw near to God, doesn't it? Except for we have someone who is atoned, you see? Same idea. The whole Bible teaches this. Why can't God do it differently? Why can't he just accept sinful people, let them come, and just leave them alone when they come? Why can't he do that? Those don't sound like unreasonable questions. Why, why does there have to be this wrath thing against sin? Why, why can't he just give us a hug? Do better. Come on, Don, you can do better. 
Those sound like reasonable questions, but they, they reveal a misunderstanding of God's essential nature. You can see an example of this. Remember when Israel gathers around Mount Sinai, up go Moses and Joshua, and they're going to get the Ten Commandments. The people are at the bottom of the mountain, but they're told they mustn't come near the mountain. Their livestock can't come near the mountain. They mustn't touch the mountain because God is on that mountain. And if sinful human beings such as we just touch the base of that mountain while God is there in his unguarded radiance, the people will die. God warns them. And and now we start to learn. Please get this. God can't turn off his nature like you turn on and off a light switch. What he is, is what he is. And what he is by nature, what he is just by nature, incinerates impurity. God's wrath isn't an emotional fit. It isn't unaffected, just warped energy. It's the uncompromising justice of God. Fallen people, fallen people can't come to God without atonement for the same reason that a spaceship can't land on the sun. The sun being what it is and spaceships being what they are it won't work. God's nature can't be turned off. He can't, he can't make himself just think lightly of my sin. I can do that because I'm a sinner. Remember, he's not. Three. Atonement in the tale of two goats. More instructions. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats. One one gets the raw deal, the other one gets released. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel, departure. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement, there it is, that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. More explanation. Sorry, I just want you to get this. I know it's a lot of text. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Do you get the impression? Do you get the impression that God is saying, 
You know, there's all these hymns about the blood of Jesus that liberal churches have bleached out of the hymn book. They're not there anymore. Do you get the impression that God is trying to say the shed blood of Jesus is going to be very important for people to approach me? All this emphasis on these animals and, and sprinkling the blood over the mercy seat, the front of the mercy seat, and thus you shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. He shall put them on the head. Does this sound like substitution to you? It does, doesn't it? He shall put them on the head of the goat, send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness, and the goat shall bear all their iniquities. Not the goat's iniquities, their iniquities. That's the picture. Of course, the goat can't do that. Jesus could, but a goat was just a picture. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. He shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So here's the heart of the issue now. How will God reveal at this early stage of revelation in the Old Covenant? How will God reveal the coming substitutionary work of Christ in all of its effects to these people under these circumstances? How will he show it to them? How will he reveal it? I mean, you can't both slay a goat and show the same goat carrying away the sins of the people. The dead goat's not going anywhere. So that'd be a terrible picture. God wanted to show his people that he wanted to do more than just pay for their sins with sacrifice. He wanted to remove sin from their lives. The sacrificial goat, the slain goat, It was slain in the holy place. No one saw that shedding of blood. And all those references to the holy place and the tent of meeting and the mercy seat, they show the effects of our sin on God's perspective. Something about my sin needs to be cleansed, made right before a holy God. Even if God was faithful and just to forgive my sins... There may still be future sins. I know what I'm like. How will I continue to function before a just and holy God? Justice requires payment, satisfaction. A price must be paid. That's the meaning of that slain goat. So the to fully picture Christ's coming, atoning work, two pictures are needed here. First, my guilt needs substitution. The first goat dies in the sinner's place. Second, I need deliverance. So do you. I need deliverance from sin's bondage, and that's where that second goat, the scapegoat, comes into the picture. This goat was sent out into the wilderness, and on its head were confessed the sins of the people. And that action shows that the driving away of the scapegoat, it does something active, something ongoing that couldn't be revealed just with the slain goat. The same sins that were paid for by the blood of the first goat on the altar are removed by the blood of the 
second goat into the wilderness. And so God, God is trying to visibly show these people who are centuries from the coming of the Lamb of God. He's trying to show these people how his forgiveness works, that it isn't just letting sinners off the hook. It takes this whole process to picture the completeness of the atoning work of Christ, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. Back to that title question. Why can't God just ignore my sin if I'm really sorry for committing it? And the Day of Atonement answers that question. For Christians like we, forgiveness is simpler than it is for a holy God. We are called to freely forgive on the basis of the costly forgiveness we have already received from Father God through the death of his Son. This, by the way, this is the answer to that tiring question. Why does God require payment in order to forgive sin? I don't require payment when I forgive someone who's wronged me, so why should God? And, and there's something that's just overlooked in that question. We freely forgive because all of the hard work of forgiveness has already been done in the Godhead. Here's a, here's a simple example. Haven't thought of this until right now. Woman's caught in adultery. You know the story. They bring her to Jesus. And they're ready to stone her. Long story short, they all leave. And Jesus says, where are those that condemn you? Oh, they're gone. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It sounds so easy, doesn't it? Just go and sin no more. What's happening there? I mean, nobody nobody's offers a lamb. Nobody, none of that. How can Jesus just say to this adulterous woman, it's okay, just go and don't sin anymore. And there's only one way Jesus says that because Jesus knows that in a few short days, he's going to die for that woman's adulterous sins. So when he says go and sin no more, it's not, ah, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. I'm the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. Like the goats, my shed blood, and the one driven into the wilderness to remove the power and effect of sin. All of that is tied up when Jesus says, go and sin no more. There's a lot behind it when Jesus talks about forgiveness. That second goat... Please notice, even though the first goat had been slain for the people's sins, those sins still had to be confessed over the head of the goat. What am I supposed to learn there? Jesus died for everyone. Is everyone saved? No. That's that second goat thing. Confession and repentance were needed to symbolically then place those sins on the head of the scapegoat. They aren't there automatically. Both sides of the atonement. For our sake, he, Father God, made him, Jesus Christ, to, to be sin. Wow. Who, who knew no sin, so that, so that in him... 
we might become the righteousness of God. So you have Jesus made sin, the price paid, that we might become the righteousness of God. But you can't show that with one goat. You need one whose blood is shed, and you need one who carries the sin away, that we might become the righteousness of God. Both sides of the atonement. This is our joy. It does something marvelous with both the guilt of my sin and God's wrath against it, and the bondage of my sin that keeps me from being all that I should be in Jesus Christ. It's not earning righteousness. It's laboring thoroughly with repentance. Picture the effort of getting a two-handed grip on that bobbing, bucking head of that goat. And then we see him struggling to hold on to that goat while he confesses all the sins of the people, all the while holding on to that live goat. How long did that take? I need to wrestle, wrestle, Don, with deep repentance. Jesus shed blood doesn't mean I don't wrestle with deep repentance. List your sins if you don't want to be constantly repeating them. Confess them daily. Think them through. Pardon is free, but it's not casually entered into. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, no wonder he said this. Talking about this, this text. Lay hold of Jesus Christ with two hands. That is, with all your might. And confess your sins as that high priest did over the head of that live goat. Lay hold of Christ with two hands. Confess all your sins. I'm going to show you more from the New Testament. There is atonement cover to cover. Atonement isn't just forgiveness. It's the removing of God's wrath that allows for forgiveness when we confess our sins based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I just want this church to know what atonement is all about. There's other facets to atonement. We'll look at them. But this is at its core. Like, this is the nucleus of biblical atonement. And so thank you, Lord, for your word. Give us, give us a weighty understanding. Joyful to be sure, but not light. Weighty. That we know what the book says both predicting what Jesus would do and then in fulfillment of what he has done. We want to take all that in to a biblical understanding of the atonement. We want to make sure that when we share the gospel with people, it's the real gospel that we're sharing. Not just try and be as nice as Jesus was. Try and do more social justice. All these things that are the fruit of atonement, but never the root of it. Bless our church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.